0: Are you a musician interested in improving your performance? Welcome to Notes on Jazz. I'm your host, Keith Davis. If you want to learn more about jazz improvisation, harmony, and composition, or just want to improve your piano skills, this is the place for you. We'll be hosting interviews with fellow musicians, offering tips and techniques on study and practice, and lots of other cool stuff. Whatever instrument you play, or if you're a vocalist, you will find something helpful and interesting here. So come hang out with us at Notes on Jazz. Well, welcome. Thank you for doing this.
1: Ooh, thank you for inviting me.
0: Yeah. So this is Marilyn Crispell. This is Notes on Jazz. I'm Keith Davis. Can I ask you, um, can you talk a little bit about your background? How did you get started playing music and how did you discover jazz?
1: I started playing piano when I was about seven years old. Um, I had a toy xylophone and my parents heard me picking out kids tunes from some records that I had and they said oh she should have piano lessons (laughs) so we had a piano in the basement because my mother was taking piano lessons so uh, that's how that started
2: nice
1: and um, I went to Peabody Conservatory to The prep department for, you know, pre-college kids and studied piano and theory and composition and all that kind of stuff. And when I was in high school, uh, one of the teachers at Peabody had a small summer camp for young composers. So I went there for about four summers in northern Vermont. That was really wonderful and um went to new england conservatory i went there in 1964 as a composition major and the next year switched to a piano major um got married in the interim and uh didn't play music well graduated in 1968 and then i didn't play music for about seven years Until my husband and I separated, Uh, it was a friendly separation. But during the time I was married, I I just didn't really play much music.
0: You not play at all, or you just didn't play professionally or perform?
1: Hardly at all. Really, hardly at all. Yeah. And then I. Moved to Cape Cod to stay with some friends for a while while I was trying to figure out what I was doing with my life. Right. And um, while I was there, <clears throat> I met some musicians who had a kind of a rock band and recruited me to be the lead singer of their rock band. Nice. Um, and then I started playing piano again at some point while I was in that band Um, and I got a job at the paperback booksmith at the Cape Cod mall while I was living there and across the hall was a record store owned by the same people who owned the bookstore. So we were allowed to go over and get any records we wanted and bring them over to the bookstore and play them there.
0: Oh, nice.
1: And, uh, There was a guy who worked at the record store, George Kahn. And we ended up getting together for about three years. And uh, he is a jazz and blues pianist who lives in California now, a wonderful pianist. And, uh, And he had a group called Celestial Mechanics. I used to go hear them play. And one night they had a gig and I was alone in the apartment. And I just pulled a record out from his collection and put it on, and it happened to be uh, John Coltrane's A Love Supreme.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. uh,
1: at, at that point, I was 28 years old, and it changed my life, literally. I understand. That one night of listening to that changed my life.
0: I understand that completely. Yeah. Um,
1: and shortly after that, I heard about a teacher in Boston <laughs> <clears throat> named Charlie Benakis.
0: Yeah, I know about Charlie.
1: Yeah, he, he was a well-known teacher, used to teach at Berkeley, but then uh, just <clears throat> separated and, and was teaching on his own. In those days, there were cassette tapes. So he had students from all over the world and uh, they they would study by cassette tape. They would make a tape, they would send it to him um, and he would send back his comments and send the cassette back to them. You can imagine how long all that took. You're sure, sure. sending something to South Korea or wherever, you know, so weeks could go by. Um, it's a little strange to think about all now, con- considering where we are now with Zoom.
2: Exactly,
1: right. um, <laughs> and everything is instantaneous. So I studied with Charlie for about two years and he was a wonderful teacher. I did nothing else during those two years, literally did nothing else, but study and practice and uh, listen to music, do, you know, transcribe. I had to transcribe a lot of different uh, solos of different pianists and some guitarists and, Uh, At a certain point, I heard about a place in Woodstock, New York, called the Creative Music Studio. It was run by Carl and Ingrid Berger, jazz musicians from Germany who had come over here and uh, fell in love with the area and just decided to start the school where there would be healthy cooking, you know, it's out in the countryside. Uh, the guiding artists would stay for at least a week each and they would work with the students on their music for a week and at the end of the week they would do a concert with the students and also a concert uh, on their own or with their colleagues, whatever. And uh, while I was there studying with all these musicians, I was also teaching an ear training course and... At a certain point, Anthony Braxton walked by a a workshop that I was in with George Russell heard me playing and invited me to play with him uh, as a duo on his concert at the end of of his week. And that's the first time we played together. That was recorded. That's now out, actually, our first uh, playing together is out on one of the creative music studio compilations. I think it's the second one.
0: I'm going to look that up.
1: And then after that, things just snowballed. He invited me to go to Europe in 1978 with his creative music orchestra, or creative orchestra, you know. And that was my first time in Europe, my first time – doing other, anything other than little solo gigs here and there. So being at the creative music studio and having, being exposed to all those musicians and having a chance to learn and play their music was the greatest education. Because we also got to hang out. We're all living together for a week at a time. And uh, some, some people came, some musicians came from Turkey and just stayed the whole summer uh besides um, contemporary jazz and classical musicians, there, there were musicians playing their music from Africa, Turkey, China, Japan, uh, Brazil, all over the place. Uh, it was just an incredible international scene. Sounds like it. Yeah so they they eventually lost their property and because i guess the the people running it were better at being musicians than business people and so for several years not much happened uh, this was in the mid 80s and since then things have kind of rebounded uh, Carl has an improvising orchestra he works with and performs with once a month. And uh, the Creative Music Studio does residencies. They're much shorter. They used to be five weeks, and now they're like three or four days. And, and they do them in New York City, and we're also doing them up here. So it a kind of a fluid situation. But it's still continuing, and uh, the the president, the director now, is Billy Martin of Modesky Martin & Wood.
2: Yeah, sure.
1: So uh, he's taken things in hand and, and really expanded the programs, and it's kind of the next generation of the creative music studio. Meanwhile, <coughs> I started playing professionally with the – Many of the musicians who I met here, mm-hmm. and the rest is history. <laughs>
0: <clears throat> yeah. That's great. I have a, actually have a couple of. Um, I know Gary used to live. I think he used to live in that. Gary Peacock used to live in Woodstock. Did he? He
1: he lived close by. He lived in the area. Yeah.
0: yeah. yeah I have a, I have several several of your records with Gary and uh, and with Paul Motion. On, just some of my favorite recordings of yours. Just uh, really
1: mm, Thank you. Yeah, I miss those guys a lot.
0: Yeah, sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I have a recording of you with Anthony Braxton, too, with his quartet.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's an early recording, I guess. But, uh, yeah, amazing stuff. So, yeah, that's great. Very interesting. I actually have a friend that went to the Creative Music Studio, too, back in the, I think it was in the 80s. It oh, been the 80s. Who was that? His name was Dwayne Norman. He was a drummer. Hmm. Long time ago, I don't even, I'm not even sure where he lives now. He lived in Atlanta, where I'm from, but um, but uh, anyway, he talked about it, talked about Carl and meeting Anthony Braxton. And you know, Dave Holland, I think, was involved at that time.
1: And Dave Holland was there, the Art Ensemble of Chicago, the Cecil Taylor Ensemble, you know. know. Yeah,
0: I see you taught at the Banff Banff Mm -hmm. program too at one time.
1: Yes, I was there once. Uh, for a week a, a, a lot of the artists came and taught for a week and then the following week a new batch of artists would come
2: yeah,
1: sure. and that was also a wonderful experience i think that teaching uh, residencies has become a very rich thing for me mm-hmm. um, it, it was something i n- never thought i wanted to do i thought i just want to play
2: sure.
1: in fact Teaching has been even more incredible in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I teach as well. I don't teach, haven't done residencies, but I teach mm-hmm. students here in my where I live. And yeah. um, you know, it's really, I used to really not like it at first, but now I like really enjoy it. And I've learned so much. Mm-hmm. I tell my students I learn more than they do.
1: Absolutely. 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 I mean, a, a lot of the time I just stand back and <laughs> listen to them, you yeah. know, and I feel like I'm just there uh, as some kind of a guide mm-hmm. for the experience. And, um, yeah. But I also I'm not teaching in a traditional way. Mm-hmm. That's,
0: that's what I want to hear about. Please tell talk us about yeah. that.
1: Well, they're more improvisation workshops. And a lot of the material is just coming from where the students are. I am not imposing anything on them, although uh, often they'll want to do something of mine. So I'll bring in a piece. But also I work with these structured improvisations. So in, in addition to totally free things, I work with kind of thinking compositionally, or or have, having a sense of composition in when when you're playing. So it's not just oh, okay, anything, everything goes, uh, and that can also include composition, you know, with, within that format. So for me the, those pieces work really well if i if i want something pointillistic for instance um i would give an image of like shooting stars in the sky or, or a diagram you know of points of getting more dense and less dense and getting, going high and low And also working with layers, simultaneous layers of different things happening. So it's not always somebody soloing and somebody else accompanying them. Um, And I I had this idea also from listening to Charles Ives, but Anthony Braxton worked a lot with this idea of superimposing things. So when he was organizing a set, Sometimes uh, it would come to a place where he was going to play a solo and we would be playing one of his written pieces underneath his solo. Or I remember once we had a quintet gig in Montreal for a week at a club there, The Rising Sun. And we were taking the train up to Montreal. And on the way, he said, well, we're going to play some tunes tonight we all looked at each other like really tunes that, that wasn't what we were thinking was going to happen and, and then it turned out we were going to play five different tunes simultaneously <laughs> and I, I always remember the drummer thurman barker his tune was love for sale oh, I, I don't remember what mine was <laughs> so yeah and you know when i was playing with the quartet with Anthony's Quartet. So we played together. We had a really solid thing going for 10 years or so in the mid-80s to the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. Made a lot of recordings, toured a lot. And uh, that band was like a family.
2: Yeah.
1: It really hard when uh, Anthony moved on to other things, which happens. Yeah, sure. um, I I think the rest of us just really, really missed the quartet.
0: Yeah, I can imagine.
1: You know.
0: Something uh, that becomes organic, right? It's like an organic... Yeah, yeah.
1: like a family, like like a family, you know.
0: So after after that, what did you you end up doing? I mean, you've done plenty of things as a leader in your own right.
1: um, Yeah, well, I tried to simultaneously always have that happening just because of the unpredictability sure. of life. And then in fact, the quartet did end and I still had my own uh, things happening. Also, I started playing with Reggie Workman, oh, okay. various ensembles of his for years. And um, w- one quartet in particular with Oliver Lake and Andrew Cyril, that. the, the Became sort of established as a quartet, and um, which eventually became Trio Three. The woman who was working booking gigs for that quartet actually suggested that it could be easier to work as a trio because they wouldn't need to find places with pianos. (laughs) And uh, so that's what they did. And then they would. Have guest pianists here and there, and I played with them one of their last gigs as that quartet, actually, um, in New York, just at the very beginning of COVID, you know, when it was still possible to to do that. And um, are
0: you? I haven't heard it. Have you? Are you on any recordings with that group? Because that's something there, I have. heard. Yeah, I'm going to look that up because so that's something I haven't heard that I'd like to hear.
1: Yeah, I think there are there about three recordings. One of them was called Synthesis, and just off the top of my head, I don't remember the names of the other two. Um, I don't, don't, don't even remember the names of my own, <laughs> my own <laughs> things from that time, but um, I think Synthesis was the first one.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm going to look that up. Yeah.
1: And then um, various and sundry other things. I started playing with a lot of European musicians, in particular Barry Guy, who is a British bass player and composer and uh, studied architecture and does, does these amazing scores. He's had exhibitions in art galleries of his scores. Wow, Beautiful, you know, drawings and everything. And uh, he led the London, or Leeds, the London Jazz Composers Orchestra, and then a smaller group, the Barry Guy New Orchestra,
2: um,
1: BGNO, uh, which is more like 10 musicians as opposed to the whole big band. I, I played with both of those, and it got to be more difficult going back and forth a lot, like commuting back and forth for a gig here and a gig there. And um, even though I I didn't want to leave the band, I suggested to Barry that he find somebody who lived in Europe yeah. and that we could still do trio things, uh, Barry and I and Paul Litton, drummer Paul Litton. So we did continue to do trio things, and yeah, so, so things just continue. And in the 1990s, Annette Peacock moved to Woodstock. She moved back from England to Woodstock, and I had been listening to some Paul Blay recordings. In particular, a, a piece of hers called Gesture Without Plot. And when I heard she had moved to this area, I found out her phone number. I called the phone company to get her phone number, which happened to be unlisted. I don't even know how that was possible that I got it. and i I called her and introduced myself and told her I loved her music, and that I had transcribed this piece of hers, and I'd love to show it to her or play it for her to be sure that it was right. And so we became friendly. And I had the idea to make a recording of her music. Originally, I was thinking solo recording. And she said, well, you know, Gary lives up around here. I can talk to him. I'm sure he would do it. And and then I thought, well, okay, if it's going to be piano and bass, I, I might as well have a drummer too. And Paul Motion and I had been playing... In various contexts, with Reggie workman as a duo uh, prior to that, so I thought he he would be a good drummer, and I wasn't even aware at that point of the history of them playing together uh, various you know as rhythm sections for people like Paul Blay and you know stuff like that. I just had the thought they would be a good rhythm section and In fact, they were. So I suddenly I thought this would be a really good project for ECM because I had thought for years of contacting them to do a project. And I thought this is something that they would like. And I had also heard through the grapevine that they were interested in doing something with me. So I sent a fax. We didn't have emails yet in those days. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm talking about the Stone Age. I sent a fax, to Manfred Eicher at ECM, and a few hours later I got an answer back from him. Yes, he wanted to do it. So we did it. We flew to Norway, to the studio he was using then in Oslo. We did the recording, and I invited Annette to come along and conduct us because, as a composer, she, she had very particular ideas about how she wanted things to be played and so i wanted her to conduct the pieces the the tempos the rubato all that you know getting faster and slower i i wanted it to be exactly the way she wanted it so that was my first experience with with ecm and um, still, one of my favorite recordings on yeah, these.
0: It's a wonderful recording. I know. It's, in fact, I just pulled that record. I haven't listened to it for a, a, a little while here, but I'm going to listen to it. <clears throat> All those records, those three that, that I know mm-hmm. of that you recorded with Gary, two of them also. Mm-hmm. Called, but
2: really yeah.
0: cool. That one is <clears throat> very interesting.
1: Yeah. That, but Annette, you- Annette, I'm sorry? Oh, sorry. Right. Annette is a wonderful composer. I mean, it was a really fascinating composer to me. Unique. Must be
0: interesting to um, to work with. I mean, it has to be that has to be wonderful too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So when you were preparing for that, what was the preparation like? I mean, you obviously had to learn the music. I mean, did you get together and rehearse the music with those guys? Or
1: um, I rehearsed mostly with Annette, and then sometimes Gary would come and join us. Uh, Paul lived in the city, uh, right. and did not like to rehearse. He he would say. I'll just hear it. I'll hear it. You
0: know, I have a funny story about about that with Paul, which I can tell you briefly. If you, Frank Kimbro, Frank Kimbro told me this story. He said he was talking to Paul, and he was getting ready to do a recording with. I won't say to people's. I don't want to put any, embarrass anyone, but he was getting ready to do a recording, a trio recording with this pianist, and um, and he said he had three rules. He said, um, I sleep in my own bed every night. I get five thousand dollars, and I don't rehearse. Those are the, those were his rules, right? It's so, sorry. so, so he said. Uh, so a few days before the recording, this pianist called him and said, um, or maybe the week before something said, "Hey, Paul, you know, this recording's coming up. Um, you know, can we can we get together and you know?" said I know you you don't like to rehearse, but can we just get together and play a little bit, and so that we can just get the feel of things? And he said, Paul said, "Oh, you'll feel it.
2: Oh, that's great."
0: <laughs> so yeah mm-hmm. so it, it sounds so when you got to the to recording studio you had annette there and you i mean you knew the music and gary knew sort of knew it but you just i mean she conducted you through it and that must have been really uh interesting way to record a trio album
1: yeah well it just made total sense i couldn't imagine not having her there you know, I mean, if if you have a chance to work with a composer, why wouldn't you? You know,
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, can you talk a little bit about how you? I, we, I mean, you look. You talked about a little bit about your um, process of putting music together, but you can you talk a little bit about your process of composing? Or hmm. process. I know there's not one process, but um, can you give us an insight into how you approach it?
1: Well, I can try. Um, First of all, I should say, I feel I'm more of an improviser Mm -hmm. than a composer in the sense of writing things down. Mm
0: -hmm. So in that sense, maybe you can talk about it from that standpoint as an improviser. Yeah,
1: just that I'll, I'll start doing something and it will be like a small cell of an idea and then try to develop that logically. And uh, or sometimes what could happen is the complete opposite. You know there there are many different ways you could go, but when I do write things, I think one of the most successful pieces I ever wrote I actually used a system, uh, which was you know there there are these mathematical squares they call them magic squares, where the numbers add up to the same. Thing if you go vertically, horizontally, or diagonally. So uh since my astrological sign is Aries, I decided to use the magic square of the planet Mars.
2: Okay.
1: And I don't remember exactly how I did it, honestly, but I, I decided to use fragments of a major scale, the first three notes of a major scale. You know, da-da-da. Okay. And just transpose it to different notes uh and not always have all three notes sometimes just one note or two i, I don't know if i ever had just one so it could sound like da-da-da, 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 forwards backwards whatever and i made a, a piece out of that and the way i decided uh which note to start on next was, I think I threw a coin onto the paper with, with the chart and wherever it landed, like if it landed on a five and I was in the key of C, then the next, next one would start on G stuff like that. I, I did something like that. And that's ended up being the piece that worked for me over the years and other people like it and play it and, Recorded. I think Terry Lynn Carrington recorded it last year. What's Um, the name of it? Rounds, R O U N D S.
0: Okay, I'll look that up
1: too. (laughs)
0: I've heard that on one of your recordings.
1: Yeah, it's on one of the ECM recordings.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I put that in there, yes.
1: So then there was the first section, and then I did the whole thing backwards. So (laughs) the, the piece is that section, and then that section. Backwards, uh, so that's that's one thing. Other times, I would just sit down at the piano and play until I came up with something I liked, and then try to write it down. For the more ballad <coughs> ballad types of things, that's how I I wrote those. Mm-hmm. And if if I use any kind of system, like if I write a melody and then uh, turn it backwards or do an inversion or whatever it's not a hundred percent strict if there's something i don't like i'm allowed to change it yes
0: you know? a spot when you're playing
1: when you're performing or well, well when when i'm even writing it yeah. You know? yeah. so sometimes it ends up being some kind of melody a 12 tone melody but then if there's something I don't like, I'll, I'll take something out or I'll add something, you know, I'm allowed to do that. I decided I'm allowed that's to do that. That's
0: <laughs> yeah. So you're playing, obviously you're associated with what we, what's called, what we call free jazz. And, and I know that you approach, I mean, I know that that's, I get, what am I trying to, what am I going to ask you? I'm trying to ask you as far as like traditional harmony, do you, sometimes use traditional harmony when you're playing as well. I mean, I don't, I mean, sure. playing sounds so free. It it sounds like sometimes there's no relation to any structure, harmony structure or.
1: Well, no, I, I think actually I've been using more and more yeah. uh, of that kind of harmony. Yeah. Um, I just try to do whatever speaks to me at the moment. You know, for for many years, when I first started out, I was very, very, very influenced by Cecil Taylor. People used to writers used to always call me the female Cecil Taylor. You know, and and anything that was ever written about me always mentioned his name somewhere in the interview or the review. And at some point, maybe just before I started working with ECM. I started going to Scandinavia to play and I heard some musicians there who really, really spoke to me, you know, Mm -hmm. and they were playing basically what they called Nordic music. And well, anyway, I, I got re influenced by that there was a bass player in particular Anders Jormin who played with Charles Lloyd for a while plays with Bobo Stenson a wonderful Swedish pianist history and it also has his own groups and is a beautiful composer yes and he does a lot of very beautiful things and somehow even when i was doing the other stuff i also played ballads I all, always played ballads also so uh, maybe some people think that I I did this 180 degree turn like you know and, and went from one type of thing to another but in fact that other uh, lyrical side uh, with the beautiful harmonies and everything that was also always part of what I did. So I just started developing it more because that's where my feelings took me, and I try to be true to what I'm feeling. Absolutely.
0: You
1: no, know, but I also feel like it's seamlessly connected. It's organic. Going, yeah. you know, it's two sides of the same coin. They're not really in competition with each other. It's it's all part of who I am and what I hear and what I play and from feedback I get that seems to come across.
0: Yeah. Yes.
1: Well, at least I hope it does.
0: I hear like I, I can hear that. Yes. Mm. I have two things I want to ask you. One, first of all, I'll say that um, I can see that how people would associate you with Cecil Taylor, but I don't think you sound like Cecil, but, mm. but I can see maybe, maybe stylistically. That people would would say that but uh, actually I was at Banff in 1985 and Cecil was there for a week as a guest artist mm-hmm. and it was amazing I mean it was just like mind-blowing yeah. he, he did a whole big band piece where he went around he had like 25 musicians on stage and you I'm seeing, you know what I'm talking about but he it's mm-hmm. just amazing and then he did a solo concert one night where he just did his thing for an hour and a half he played non-stop for an hour and a half it was amazing and just to you know, Sort of, I mean, just to sort of be in a crowd of people, he used to be talking and just to see what he tried to listen to, what he had to say. It was hard to understand what he was saying a lot of the time, actually. But he did a workshop. Just, it was really fascinating. Anyway, Dave Holland was there as well, and uh, Dave Liebman, and it was really a mm-hmm. but-
1: Yeah. I mean, Cecil is such an influential yeah. musician. And, I mean, people like Cecil and Anthony mm-hmm. Braxton, and Sun Ra and Ornette, you know, they they really change the face of Western music.
0: It did absolutely, yeah, yeah,
1: in in a very profound way, very profound way, um, and that's often recognized more in other parts of the world than here. Um, you know, a prophet in his own country, type of thing, but. I remember when I first heard Cecil, it just sounded like a lot of energy to me. Yeah. And I really related to it. I really related to the energy, but I didn't i didn't at all really hear what he was doing. It just took a lot of listening to start hearing yeah. all the themes and the relationship to, you know, what came before. And that, that even when he was playing... With very with a lot of intensity, there was always breath. It wasn't just cascades of notes; it was phrases and themes and and breathing and dancing. He danced with it, you know. He, he was a dancer too. So, um, yeah, he was just a a huge influence. Also, Abdullah Ibrahim, who at the time I discovered him was called Dollar Brand was a big influence and uh, Braxton those years of playing with Braxton huge influence Coltrane the most profound original influence um you know emotional spiritual everything yeah.
0: Yeah. I can relate to what you said about Cecil but when I first I had a, when I was a teenager I had an album of his called air yeah the uh, air above mountains I think it was called Mm-hmm. I'm sure he, and I I love the energy. I would listen to it. I, I had no idea what was going on, but it was mm-hmm. energetic and and uh,
1: striking, you know. It,
0: it, like you said, it took a long time to understand that he was actually had, was organized, you know, in a certain
1: mm. way. Totally. Yeah. Totally. It was was such, on, such, um,
0: yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt.
1: You. No, no, no. I, I just was commenting on what you were saying.
0: He was on um mm. um the What's her name? The Mary McPartland show one time, and Mm -hmm. she she was talking about. Oh well, she said he he played something, and she said, "Oh well, you're just you're just playing lots of stuff that it's it's just it's not doesn't have any organization to it or whatever." And then he played exactly the same thing that he just played before, and she was like, "Oh Mm -hmm. well, I guess." (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So yes, there's definitely organization and thought put into it, as well as the spontaneous, energetic aspects of it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's so amazing to, at some point, realize you're actually hearing these things. Yes. And then be surprised at how you didn't hear them at the beginning. Right. You know?
0: Yeah. You know, not long ago, I had this realization. I think I was listening to Monk, and I was like, you know, that sounds like Cecil Taylor. That's related to Cecil Taylor. I mean, there there's a relationship there between what Monk is doing and what Cecil was doing, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you start hearing mm-hmm. a lot of the connections. And... Absolutely. mm mm-hmm.
0: So I see that you're um, you've got some things lined up for next year. Uh, so next year,
1: you're,
0: yeah. you're going to be in Knoxville, great. which is not too far from me. So I'm going to try to come see you in March when you're in oh, Knoxville. fantastic. With Joe Lovano. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you have any other? In fact, I I'd, I'd love to. I'm going to I'm going to talk to you some more. I have some questions for you myself about about uh, learning more about approaching free improvisation i do i'll try a little bit myself i do like to do that my tribe a trio and we like to do that some too but it well it seems like there's there's not one just one way to go about it like you said you Mm -hmm. don't just you don't have to just sit down and just start everybody playing freely you can have organizational principles that you apply Mm -hmm. like you said can be a composition or you know i mean like ron my bass player says well we we try to improvise freely over the tunes that we're playing. That's right, too. I mean, we mm-hmm. tunes and we try to improvise freely within that context. I mean, I mean, there's harmony, but we try to be as free with our improvising in that context as we can. You
1: know, but, and, and, you know, free, this was also a revelation to me, but during one of the recordings for ECM um, with Gary and Mark Elias, the, that trio, Manfred said, well, try, play some free ballads. And all of a sudden I thought, oh yeah, free is free. It doesn't mean just one particular style or it doesn't mean avant-garde. It doesn't mean this, doesn't mean that. It's free. So the first thing that came out of that um, on the recording Amaryllis or was that with Paul? I already don't remember which was which.
0: Amaryllis was uh, Gary. I think that was a duo. With, or no, the trio. that was a trio. Was Gary and Paul, yeah.
1: Gary and Paul, right. Yeah. And um, Gary just started playing this line, you know, which went da-da-dum bum 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 Bum, bum. And and that went on for the entire piece. And I just felt this melody coming out that turned into the piece Amaryllis, mm-hmm. which sounds like a written composition.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful, yes.
1: So that's that was free. That was free, for instance. Yeah. But I, I think listening is the most important element when you're playing, when you're playing, period, but it's absolutely essential when you're playing free. Listen.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And it's just very interesting letting letting things come, letting them happen. Uh, I mean, sometimes you'll have a specific idea of something you want to do, but the other people they start doing something different. And then there have been times when I thought, oh, look, okay, how can I turn this around to the thing that I wanted to do? And it doesn't work, and it doesn't work because nobody else is in that space. Right, right. You know? So well, it's sort of a democratic thing. You have to listen to the majority. And then maybe when the time is right, someone steps in and changes it, but it may not be the thing I originally thought. Right that I was going to do. Absolutely. You know, so, so you have to be really open. Yes.
0: Yeah. And you have to listen. The, the key sure. is
1: yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You know, I, I interviewed Ron, my bass player. He was the first interview I did for this podcast. And he said the same thing. And another comment he made was in a way, this is like the, this is like the heart of really playing jazz, playing freely, because you have to listen to each other. Everybody has to be there, you know, Listening to each other, yeah. you know, make that work. And that's Art Landy said something very similar. Uh, he, you know, the other day we, we I talked to Art Landy. He mentioned the word. It's a democratic process. Everybody's yeah. has a voice, and you know, yeah. it's it's a very cooperative. You know, so, yeah, so that's very important.
2: Yeah.
0: Beautiful. Well, this has been great. This is great. I really appreciate this conversation. So. Um, can I ask you what, um, like a lot of my students are, uh, I teach at a college, I'm an adjunct at a college and my students are actually mostly usually classical pianists because we don't really have a jazz program. We have a, you know, we have a, I mean, there are combos and a big band and some individual teachers and that kind of thing, but we, but it's really more classically focused school. So most of my students end up being classical pianists. Mm Mm-hmm interested in learning about jazz or improvisation and it's really interesting working with them because these are really accomplished usually accomplished Mm -hmm. people they don't have any experience playing improvised music or learning about it so it's been a real a, a challenge for me but also very interesting for me um to try to you know
1: don't you find that that when you start working with people that they just have to start where they are
0: yes absolutely yeah yeah
1: so, so,
0: and I have to start where I am in relationship to where they are. And that's, yeah. I
1: mean, yeah. So, what I, I've found um, with some classical musician friends that it's very difficult for them to make the leap yes.
2: um,
1: to just playing. And a lot of it, well, it's totally psychological um, because there's a conditioning and I know this from being in the classical world myself originally there, there is this terrible judgmental uh, thing going on and you're terrified, you, you know, it's terrifying to play. Like, am I going to do something wrong? Am I going to be judged for it? Am I going to be ridiculed? And And people that is a very very hard thing to get past i i remember actually the very first time i improvised freely with another person uh, not just for dance classes because i played for dance classes since i was 14 improvising sometimes with other people even but uh, it was a friend of mine baird hersey i was living in boston at the time when i was studying with charlie and he had a band in Boston called the Year of the Ear. And it was the most creative thing going on in Boston. Yeah, I've
0: heard of that. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. yeah. Berkeley too, for, uh, briefly back in the 80s. So,
1: yeah. So I, I used to go listen to them a lot and we became friends. And he came over to my apartment one day, brought his guitar, and said, We're going to improvise. And he said, Just start playing and don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, that became my modus operandi for years, actually. (laughs) Um, That's great. and, And so I did that, and the feeling was literally like jumping off a cliff. It was terrifying to make that first leap. Right. Because there's nobody to tell you what to do. There's no piece of paper in front of you telling you what to do you know, it's up to you. And yeah, what can I say? It was just absolutely terrifying. I understand. Liberating.
0: Liberating is the key word, I think. Yeah, it's terrifying. But when you get past that, it's like, okay, that's, yeah. I see that in my students. I ask them when they first come for a lesson, I say, okay, well, play something for me. You know, they'll play something. And I say, well, now improvise something. And they're like, I, 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 what, I don't know how to do that. You know, I'm like, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. And then I try to walk them through just some beginning stage, just how to think about mm-hmm. loosening it up. You know, the, the one, another thing that I noticed about classical musicians is they have trouble with the playing in a, a different feel. Like it's hard for them to play like a swing feel or a Latin feel. They, and it's hard for them to play something simple that has a, a, a rhythmic groove, like a, any kind of a groove thing, yeah. I'm so used to having, okay, yeah. I got all this technique and I got all this facility at the piano, and now I'm, I got to use it because I got it, so I got to use it. Yeah, so it's hard to just go play this little, play this but play that. That that's hard, you know.
1: I think you just get it by listening and playing a lot. Yeah,
0: you have to play and you have to listen, you know.
1: You know, I and with,
0: you know, my, I have high school students too. They come to my house, and I have a drum set, and I'm, I'm not yeah. a good drummer, but I can keep time. Yeah. I play with them. I just say, okay, we're going to play the swing feel, maybe use the metronome even, you know, for both of us and just play together. And sometimes some of them will just play for 15 minutes straight if I let them, which is great, which I do let them. I encourage them, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, but to get the feel of it, um, yeah, you're right. You have to listen to the music. And
1: and play it and get used to being inside it. I mean, uh, well, Charlie <laughs> used to make me play things with one finger. He used to make me. <laughs> melodies with one finger
0: well interesting
1: to to get away from some of the classical touch however i have to say what's a part of you is a part of you
2: yes sure
1: instead of trying to get rid of it like you know cut off your nose or something you just have to incorporate it and and accept it as part of of who you are
0: yeah, I absolutely hear that in your music. When I listen, I can hear that you have that that facility and that background, but it doesn't stop you from playing things that are what, mm-hmm. beautiful and flowing and free and whatever. But, so that's you're you're a you're embodying your your uh, advice there.
1: <laughs> I mean, everybody is coming from a different place, and that all has to be respected. Right. Absolutely, yeah. and and yeah, I mean without. without jazz or without blues without the black american experience this music would not even be happening you know i mean pe- people people would improvise they would always improvise but it would be a very very different thing you know and and so you know people who did not grow up in that tradition are never going to have exactly the same feel when they're playing as people who grew up in that tradition.
2: Absolutely right. Yeah. So
1: it's like a big melting pot absolutely. of various traditions yeah. that that should all be respected and acknowledged. You know? mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: So I was asking, i trying to ask you what, uh, or wanted to ask you what you suggest for those students. And now I think uh, it's turned into, what do you suggest for me to reach those students? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that, that what, a lot of the things you said there are, are, it's very good advice for me as a teacher as well. And, uh, but do you have anything else that you would say what for students that are trying to, and not just, I don't mean just, classical pianists that are trying to play jazz, but just students in general, young students who are coming up in this culture where they're, first of all, they're not exposed to this music. They're not exposed to jazz really. Mm-hmm. They look for it or unless somebody says, Hey, listen to this, you know, Yeah. most of them are not right. exposed to that. So exactly. I, mean, I wasn't exposed to it when I was young, not until I was probably 15 or 16. Did I, did I start to discover this music?
1: You know? Yeah. I was 28. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, well, I think one thing is like I like I said before, to start where you are. So if somebody's coming from rap music, start there.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. And and to start with simple things. Like I think one big mistake a lot of people make is they try to do everything at once or they think they have to do something really impressive. How about starting with one note or one phrase and and just developing it? Because when people are starting out, myself included, they do that—they play a lot of notes without stopping. You know, exactly. right. just play a lot of stuff. Well, where's the intention behind that? What are you feeling? Where is your voice in that? You know. So if you if you try to get in touch with your voice, and that voice is always going to be shaped and affected by the things that you have heard and the things that you've been exposed to, the things that you've loved. Uh, I I think these days it's not about playing any particular style anymore because I know a lot of the younger people coming up, they do everything.
0: Right, absolutely.
1: They do everything, and they're brilliant. Right, absolutely. Um, (laughs) Just to get back to the classical music thing again, there was a short time, maybe a year, when I was teaching kids like 8 to 10 years old at a music center in Boston. And yes, I had to teach them to play classical music. But at the end of every lesson, I would have like five minutes where they would improvise and I would say things to them. like, oh, What happened in school today? Oh, some kids pulled my hair in the playground, whatever. Okay. Okay. Can, can you play that? And they, they would, they would just play it. And, uh, and, and one girl had a cat she loved. I said, can, can you play your cat? Yeah. Things like that. So, so just things from their lives and they didn't hesitate yes. because, they were still young enough to not be too worried about what somebody was going to think. And the school really had mixed feelings about it. They, <laughs> they weren't sure they wanted that. And at the end of the year was a concert and the kids, they played their pieces and then they improvised and everybody loved it. And they were so excited by it. And it was like, okay, this is great. <laughs> you know? yeah. So yeah, they, they don't have to be mutually exclusive
0: absolutely yeah yeah in
1: fact they shouldn't be
0: absolutely again i agree with that too absolutely
1: it's so so nice to talk with you and to to meet you you know yeah. Yeah. it is really different to be able to see somebody not just hear a voice absolutely yeah
0: i agree i was going to make the comment that this conversation has been very refreshing for me and i i really um i'm getting a lot out of it for myself and uh, so do you have any um, any other projects that you'd like to talk about? Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? I mean, you have any recordings that we might not know about yet, or? Um,
1: um, well, I I I didn't actually have a chance to mention that I've been these past years I've been playing a lot with Joe Lovano.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what i was just about to ask you because that's the trio that's coming to Knoxville. Yeah,
1: yes, trio tapestry with Carmen Castaldi on drums, and uh, and that's been. <laughs> Wonderful. that's that's just been wonderful playing with Joe. And he's also a very prolific composer. and uh, he, he would be writing things as we were on the road. And just as soon as I would learn, you know twenty of his compositions, all of a sudden he'd bring in a new one. Like, oh, I heard these church bells today, and then I got inspired to write this piece. We're gonna play this tonight. Awesome. so he he really, it keeps you on your toes.
2: Absolutely. Yes.
1: Um, that's been wonderful. And we're playing in Knoxville. We have another week at the Village Vanguard in New York City at the end of August. I also have been playing with some Scandinavian musicians, a Danish drummer who, was, uh, who took part in a residency of mine in Denmark, a summer, summer session. That was also fantastic. And um, her name is Mikela Ostergaard. And um, she's a drummer and composer. And uh, Tommy Anderson, uh, bass player, wonderful bass player. He's Swedish, but he lives in Denmark. Uh, he's been living there for a long time. And so we we are probably going to do something else. I know there are other possibilities. Um, I just can't think what they are at the moment. Mm -hmm. But there there are other things happening next year.
0: When you mentioned the Scandinavian uh, musicians, it, it reminded me, I wanted to ask you, about the musicians that were playing Nordic music, what did they mean by that? Was it like traditional Nordic music, or was it their their style of their own style of music they were developing? Both, sort of both, yeah.
1: Both. Um, some some things that were very influenced by traditional folk music. Um, there, there's an ECM recording of Anders Jormann it's a quintet recording. I'm playing on it. It's called In Winds in Light.
0: In winds and Light.
1: In Winds, comma, in, light. in light. In winds, in light. And um there's a singer named Lena Lena Villemark. I don't know. Let me know if you want me to spell.
0: Uh, it's okay. I'll I'll figure I'll find it. Yeah, or we'll yep. talk
1: to And cool. she grew up in the north of Sweden. They they do this kind of singing across the mountains. Um, they they call it a cooling, I think, and it's like ah! you know calling the cow. and they're talking to each other across the mountains, and so it's very wild. And um, so she she does some of that, and I thought that that some of the Swedish music. Sound reminded me a lot of Irish music, and then um, people said, Yeah, well, the Vikings were there. You know, there, there was a lot of um, interaction between the Vikings and um, the Celtic lands. You know, there, there are islands in Scotland where people still use Scandinavian words. You know, like uh word for child is b-a-r-n barn
2: yeah
1: and in scotland they'll say bern or whatever mm-hmm. a lot of that kind of thing interesting so yeah i kind of got off on a tangent here
0: oh no it's great that, that's that's, mm-hmm. that's what i want to you <laughs> mm-hmm. no that's really interesting i've never heard of that swedish singing like that mountains across the
1: yeah mountains. yeah and i think they do that in Norway too I was surprised when I first heard it it's very very powerful yeah Yeah.
0: it made me think of uh, I heard um, what's his name Bella Fleck came here several years ago it's been a while and he brought these throat singers they're called throat singers from Tyvoli I can't remember where they're from Uh, Mongolian Mongolia, right, but it's some, yeah, an area of Mongolia, and they sing, they do this weird singing, they call it, mm-hmm. throat. it's very strange. I was like, wow, it's really interesting.
1: Yeah, it's like you can sing two notes at once.
0: Yeah. yeah. You
1: have this very, very low fundamental, and then you do something with your throat where this high flute-like sound mm-hmm. comes out.
2: Yeah. And beautiful.
1: it sounds like a flute. It does not sound like a human being singing. Yeah because the first time i heard it i was thinking well where are the singers you know and what's what's that instrument playing
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's amazing yeah. it's amazing all the different music from all the different i have actually i have a, um, I have an, a harmonium coming from india in the next week or so mm-hmm. it's a, it's designed by a, um, a doctor in india and it's called 22 shruti harmonium so, hmm. each note has a bar on it that you can adjust the pitch of each note so that, like, if you, yeah. you can play in just intonation in whatever key you're in, you can, uh-huh. you can tune it so that you can play like Indian music, which is, you know, it's yeah. intonation is very much, how do I say, it's very pure, if that's the right way to do it. And they use these, um, you know, the quarter pit, quarter tones. And, quarter tones, yeah. So, this harmonium is supposed to be something that you can use to. You know, play that music. We'll see what happens when I get it.
2: Well, that sounds fantastic.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. I can't wait. It should be here probably in a week or two. I don't know how long it'll take, but I ordered it several months ago. It's taken a while. Actually, I've been thinking about it for several years, and it got it went, during COVID everything got put on hold, so I had to wait until after they were back in business again. Mm. But it's on the way now, so
1: yes. it's very interesting. You know, I think that's another thing that's that's happened in in the contemporary scene is the incorporation of world music.
0: Absolutely.
1: In jazz, in and improvised music, in um, all of that, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Well, Marilyn, do you have anything else you'd like to talk about before we wrap this up today?
1: Um, well, there was one, another musician, I love playing with when he lived up here. He now is living in Virginia, actually. Oh, yeah? Who's that? Uh, his name is, I have to spell it for you probably, TCG?
0: Oh, yeah. TCG Munoz.
1: Yes, you know him.
0: Yeah, yeah. I know Bob Moses very well, actually.
1: Ah, oh, yes. Well, well, Bob's in
0: yes. Spain right now. He's going to be back in about, I think he told me he's coming back this, this coming week. I'm going to do an interview with him. Oh. I actually had Bob down at Furman as a guest artist. Years ago, I mean, I, I'm not usually in charge of that, but our, the, the head of the jazz program was going to be taking a sabbatical. And I said, hey, can I bring Bob Moses? And he goes, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll be gone. So go ahead, bring whoever you want. So I got Bob to come down for uh, for about five days. And that was real interesting. So I know he's a, he's a, you know, a friend or follower of, to CG. So,
1: um, yeah,
0: did you record with him?
1: Yes. Yeah. Did several recordings.
0: Yeah. Um, I wonder, I have several. Rec- I wonder if you're on one of those recordings that I have of to CDs. I'll have to look and see.
1: I think there was, there was one called Breaking the Wheel of Life and Death. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And Auspicious Healing. Yeah,
0: I think I have that CD
1: actually. But any, anyway, um, before he moved to Virginia, we would play some, uh, particularly at a place up around here called The Falcon. Okay. And he writes these beautiful, beautiful tunes. Yeah. Very simple, but very beautiful, Very uh, like a lot of heart energy
2: yeah.
1: coming from him. And uh, when I play with him, I it also gets very wild. Yeah. You know? yeah. so, so it's a combination of, of these... Relatively simple, beautiful tunes, and then the wild energy improvising,
2: yeah.
1: You know, so yeah, I, I just wanted to mention him also. Yeah,
0: awesome. I think I have one at least one of those recordings that you're on now that you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. I have to go look that up. Yeah, beautiful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've probably forgotten lots of stuff that I should have. Well,
0: well, and, uh, again, I like to leave it. I like to. I like it to be like you said, improvisational. You know, we just go where the conversation takes us, and we can always do it again sometime in the future. You know? mm-hmm.
1: So, yeah, you you talked about. I don't know if we're still recording or not. Yeah, we are. Yeah. But, uh, well, I mean, you you talked about a lesson and everything. I wasn't sure what exactly you. Well, know, I, to
0: do. I think I just wanted to ask you about your approach, and you know, maybe we could. Um, maybe we could do that at some point, you know, maybe mm-hmm. go on and do something like this and, and uh, I can play for you and you can say, we'll try this, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
0: have some suggestions like that.
1: Yeah. yeah. I'm happy to do that. You know, it doesn't have to be a formal.
0: Yeah. I understand. Yeah.
1: lesson Or something, but you
0: know, I, I, I did an interview with David Berkman a few weeks ago and uh, I'd had a, I called it a lesson. I got online with him. He, he's written a book that I use with my students about harmony. And, mm-hmm. And I wanted to talk to him about a specific topic from his book, and we ended up talking for two hours. And and, uh, and I mentioned it when we did the interview a few weeks ago. And he said, "Oh yeah, well, it's not. It's like it's you know, you, it's not really like a lesson. It's more like a conversation." I said, "Well, yeah, yeah. that's true, you know. But but uh, it, it's helpful though, you know. And it's yeah. it helps you looking in a different direction, looking things from a different direction or a different perspective. And you know, that's one thing I get <laughs> from this too for myself personally is." I find that I've uh, getting a lot of different perspectives from a lot of people about how they approach their art. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a really beautiful thing to me. You
1: know? Yeah. So you wrote a book about harmony?
0: No, not me, but David Berkman. He's a pianist in New oh, York. Wrote yeah. Oh. And it's a, it's a book that he wrote that I use with my students. Uh-huh. It's, it's called the jazz harmony book. It's oh. really, it's, you know, it's just about harmony, but it's pretty, um pretty, it's well-organized and, uh, you know, it's very helpful and useful, I think
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: well, anyway, I think um this might be a good point, place to just wrap it up for today. Um, once again, this is Marilyn Crispel, and uh, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today, Marilyn, and I hope we get to do it some more and um,
1: i I really enjoyed it too
0: yeah me too. I really very much you know. And your website is com, and uh, I'll have it in the show notes when I when I get this um, edited and published. I'll have it in the show notes so people can um, look you up and find out more about your music and more about you and whatever they, they might like to do. And I really appreciate the recordings of yours that I have. In fact, I'm, I just pulled some of them out that I haven't listened to for a few months or a year or so. And I'm going to listen, especially that Annette Peacock recording I want to listen to again especially knowing that she was there in the room with you conducting. That's a really interesting yeah. Well, thank you so much. Um, I hate to stop, but uh, I think we should just stop for now and try to do another one coming up some another time.
1: I totally forgot to mention this other trio with the drummer Harvey Sorgan and the bass player Joe Fonda. That's sort of a collective trio. We all bring in compositions ideas. We are also going to be um, playing during the last week of May Okay, take care. Bye.
2: Bye bye. Thank you.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Thanks for checking out Notes on Jazz. If you want to communicate with me, I offer free consultations. Just check the podcast notes for a link. You can also find a link to my website for CDs, downloads, and videos. See you next time at Notes on Jazz.